There can be coarse language and adult concepts in our program, so please watch out for little ears that might be running around if you've got your podcast playing, or pop on some headphones, and that way no one can get offended but you. When you're squirrelling through the archives, turn out uh, up these tales like Mary Bryant's that no one will believe, and you make up the mundane stuff. The stuff I get accused of making up is the stuff that actually happened. It's the the mundane connective tissue uh, that you need to uh, uh, need to make up when writing historical fiction. Rights for Festivals proudly presents the Scone Literary Festival, supported by Writing New South Wales and Create New South Wales, with Pamela Cook and Kel Butler from the Rights for Women podcast. This panel is historical fact or fiction with Meg Keneally, Ross McMullen and Carolyn Beecham. Good morning. Um, very briefly, I'm one of the original, uh, on the original committee of this organisation. Um, I'm a retired veterinarian in the sanguine twilight zone of benign self-imposed genteel redundancy. And the... Uh, uh, the Shire president who just left would think, well, that was probably a very good idea. Um, we have an extraordinary panel, the gentleman and lady on my left. Um, Meg, I met Ross and I met Carolyn last night, and Meg's arrived this morning. Gentlemen and ladies, welcome. Um, I will give a very brief introduction to each, and then we launch into what they have to say about their writing and the work that they have done. Firstly, Dr. Ross McMullen on my left, and uh, this is in no particular order, and it's gentlemen before ladies, but uh, as I did say, you will open the bowling and or the batting, Ross, because he's a first great cricketer of renown from Melbourne, Melbourne University days, aged 18, and the Paran Club. However, it's not about cricket this morning, it's about literature, and in his case, it's about um, uh, non-fiction. Ross McMullen, Dr. Ross McMullen, is an award-winning historian and biographer. His 2002 biography, Pompey Elliot, about Australia's most famous fighting general, won awards for literature and biography. His latest book is Pompey Elliot at War in His Own Words. And Ross will have the opportunity to talk about other books as well. Um, Caroline, Caroline Bicham in the center, the centerpiece, is a best-selling author of Maggie's Kitchen, and a new novel, Eleanor's Secret, published only in May this year. Her debut novel was shortlisted for Booktopia's Best Historical Fiction in 2016 and nominated as Book of the Year and Caroline as as Best New Author of Osram Today. The lady on my far left is Meg Keneally. Welcome to Scone, Meg. Thank you. It's great to have you here. I think you only managed to come up this morning to drive up. Uh, I think there were actually you had to make alternative travelling arrangements, but at short notice. But thank you and well done. And Meg is another remarkable person. Meg started her working life as a junior public affairs officer at the Australian Consulate General in New York before moving to Dublin to work as sub editor and freelance writer. So welcome. The three contestants, I was almost going to say, but um, maybe yeah. in treaty terms, that could be the case. But welcome, gentlemen and ladies. Um, I'd now like to um, invite, if I may, um, Ross 
if he would be uh, like give a resume himself of where he's at and possibly to um, lead off with his first book, which was on Pompey Elliot and how that came about. And here is actually, if I might be so bold, a, um, a review of that book by the great author Les Carline, whom I also admire greatly in his foreword to the 2008 edition. He is tough and tender, cocksure and vulnerable, charismatic and cranky, a burly and rudder-cheeked man who, once seen, is not to be forgotten. Here is a fine piece of storytelling, a journey back to an Australia that is long gone. Here is a narrative that never stalls, but carries us along like a river heading for the sea. Here is Pompey Elliot, bursting out of the page, larger than life and worn down by life. Dr. Ross McMullen. Thanks very much, Bill. Um, as it happens, I have a prepared thing here about fact or fiction, which I perhaps will leave to later in view of, in view of the intro. Um, Pompey Elliott I first encountered in 1979 at the, uh, when researching a PhD I was then doing, um, and I came across his letters and diaries at the Australian War Memorial, and they just, they just blew me away. And um, I just thought, why, is, why, don't, why don't we know more about this bloke? Uh, Pompey Elliott was, as, as Bill said, I think, Australia's most famous fighting general in World War I. He commanded the 7th Battalion at Gallipoli, the 15th Brigade at the Western Front, and he certainly felt he should have gone higher still and uh, attained a divisional command, um, but he was overlooked because he was too cranky, basically. <laughs> he was too forthright, and what he, what he did in those letters uh, that bowled me over back in 1979 was, was he, is, he is so frank, forthright, controversial and emotional. He had a no secrets pact with his wife, which he certainly adhered to, to the letter. Um, and where Australia, there have been published, I think now hundreds of Australian, um, whether they be edited letters or a diary or, uh, or a memoir, post-war memoir. Um, I don't think there is any one of those hundreds that within Cooey of Pompey, um, and this is in relation to. So I did a biography in 2002, and then this, this later book last Elliot at War in his own words, which is a collection of excerpts. Of, but I don't think there's any account more riveting than Pompey as a personal narrative of Australia in World War I. It's because of his words. And I'll save the fact or fiction for later on, Bill. Uh, Caroline, um, as I've explained um, about Maggie's Kitchen and then your other novel uh, that's uh, just come out, um, and about you, you grew up in England. I did notice something in your intro that you wrote about yourself, that um, you have a special interest in those pioneering women whose lives you imagine through fiction. I don't know whether that will lead you into anything, but I now invite you to present your scenario. I write historical fiction, and Maggie's Kitchen evolved from discovering about the 
um, British restaurants that the Ministry of Food set up during the Second World War to help with all the food shortages. And it just seemed to me um, that it was something that I hadn't read about, hadn't heard about. And it's those unexplored parts of history that I find really interesting. And it's also there's, you know, there's a lot documented documented about the conflict, but it's those stories about what people were doing behind the scenes and on the home front, which really um, interested me. And the more I looked into it, there was so much material in the National Archives and everyone was crazy about food. Um, the novel came out in 2016 and, you know, it was that time where there were so many cooking shows and um, it just also seemed there were lots of parallels with the way people ate then and now that I thought would be interesting. But the character of Maggie came to me quite quickly as well because she was actually trying to overcome some, her own grief. And by nurturing other people, um, it, it really helped her. Um, along with Janek, who is a Polish refugee who um, worked the allotments and gardens of the capital to help with um, fulfilling those shortages. And there's also 12-year-old Robbie um, who was evacuated to the countryside with his family, but he keeps coming back to London because he wants to be there when his dad gets back from the war. And he, he rummages through the West End hotels and finds ingredients that he brings to Maggie in her kitchen. So the three of them together help, um, help heal the community. Um, but, and then, again, with my second novel, um, I discovered that the War Artists Advisory Committee was set up and it was to document um, what was happening um, both overseas and also in the UK. And it also had a secret aim, which was to employ a generation of artists that would otherwise have had to go to war. So again, set during the Second World War, but another untold story. Um, but what was really interesting, there were 400 um, artists employed and there were 37 full-time and of those, 36 were men, and there was only one female war artist. And this really sparked something in me. I just thought, you know, time of such change, and women were taking on so many of the roles. And um, so, obviously, again, a lot more um, archive and research, which hopefully we'll get to talk about, because I think that's where the interesting discussion is with fact and fiction when it comes to historical fiction writing. Um, and you know that the, the kind of the need for both, but um, so so Eleanor's secret um, centres around Eleanor's um, quest to fulfil her ambition of becoming a war artist. There is also a parallel storyline um, with her granddaughter Catherine, who lives in Melbourne. Um, Eleanor gives her granddaughter um, a special painting, which was um, which was. Um, painted by the artist Jack Vallant. And uh, she later asks um, Catherine to return it and find out what happened to the artist. So there's a lot of mystery, um, family secrets. Um, so those, those are my two novels. Lovely, thank you very much indeed. Then we'll come back to each of our authors. Uh, now I invite Meg Nelly. Meg, you have a famous name, of course. <laughs> And um, that's fine, but you're famous in your own right. And I did recently watch, in fact, last night, I watched a recording on ABC, it's a YouTube thing, um, which you did with your father. Mm. And you described to where you're, how you're at. But to quote specifically, what you wrote to me earlier in the week was that uh, you can put something together on 
the stranger-than-fiction true tales which emerge when researching historical fiction and how to write about events which never occurred and people who never existed against a factual backdrop. Mm. I've tried to get my mind around that. <laughs> so far, I haven't succeeded. You might like to elucidate. Uh, Meg Keneally. Hello. Thank you very much. Um, uh, just a bit of background on me. I write uh, the Montserrat series of colonial era whodunits with my father, Tom. Um, next year, I've got, uh, and the year after, I've got two books of my own out there, all historical fiction. And like Carolyn, I'm very interested in the role of um, the unsung female heroes uh, in history. So the one that's out next year is based on uh, the life of a First Fleet convict called Mary Bryant. Anyone heard of Mary Bryant? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. For those who haven't, um, she was a Cornish highway woman uh, who came out on the First Fleet and um, uh, masterminded a plan to nick the governor's cutter uh, mm. and sailed it with her two children and some others to West Timor, as you do. <laughs> 69 days in an open boat. There's also the possibility of an affair with James Boswell, but we'll go into that yes, later. Yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so one of the things I love about writing historical fiction is that you do, when you're squirrelling through the archives, turn out uh, up these tales like Mary Bryant's that no one will believe, and you make up the mundane stuff. Mm. The stuff I get accused of making up is the stuff that actually happened. It's the, the mundane connective tissue uh, that you need to uh, uh, need to make up when writing historical fiction. So, well, that's. Uh, I, I was going to ask you about that book in particular. I think Mary Bryant's maiden name was Broad, and she was William Bryant. Broad or Born? Yes. Born. Yes. Okay. And from Fowey in Cornwall. Yeah, from Foy in Cornwall. Yes. Just and across the. When river you're researching, Boston. is it your intention to make an open boat journey from <laughs> Sydney uh, Heads to? <laughs> <laughs> Look, I, I would, East Timor. A few did it. I, 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 on one level, I would love to. There's a yes. gentleman I know called Jonathan King who um, was the one who organised the First Fleet reenactment. Yes. He's a uh, he's said to me in front of his wife that he's in love with Mary Bryant. Wow! And uh, he would uh, he would love to redo that journey. I think 69 days in an open boat is. Might be uh, that might be taking research a little too far. Yes, okay. Um, <laughs> but also, the enactment of she lost actually both the children. She did. Charlotte was born on the named after the Charlotte, the first the Charlotte, the and, ship that she yes, was on. Yes, and the other child born also died. And William Broad died, I think, in Kupang or perhaps uh, uh, Will Bryant. Yeah, Will he Bryant died rather. in he died in Batavia, in which, Batavia, which yes. was a place of ill repute among sailors, as a place yes. which had poisonous air and. A yes. lot of people died of fever there. But she was really Australia's first almost emancipist woman, wasn't she? Oh, she sure. got back and she had champions in high places like Absolutely. Boswell. Like imagine. James Boswell. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. Uh, there um, were various bawdy rhymes going the rounds of British taverns about Mary and James and we'll never know whether they had an affair, but he certainly had form. Possible. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. She disappeared, didn't she? She was well. Yeah, she disappeared from history. She um, uh, she went back to Cornwall. She, uh, Boswell, after he secured her pardon, showed her off around London uh, for a while, mm -hmm. and then she became homesick. So he arranged for her to go back to Foy in in Cornwall, where she was from, and he sent her a monthly stipend, which kind of makes me think they did have something going on. But yes. anyway, uh, until his death um, uh, and uh, the last we hear of her 
is a note that she had her cousin write on her behalf, she was illiterate, mm. uh, thanking him for the most recent payment, at which point she disappears from history. We don't know what happened to her yes. after that. Well, okay, mm. I, I really wanted to ask you that. That's great. And we might come back to others. Mm. Ross, you have many other books, and um, one of them was about the most famous Australian ever. Um, so you have written Will Dyson, Australia's Radical Genius. And I think there does say um, a stunning overnight success. Dyson was described as the most famous Australian in the world. I didn't get the right. I think I did say ever. But that was um, because of his um, ability. In he, he, he the was, part of this is a chap who was a very talented artist writer who was born in Ballarat in 1880, struggled to find a niche in Australia for his talents, went overseas and became internationally acclaimed in all these things, internationally acclaimed as a powerful cartoonist, internationally acclaimed as Australia's first official war artist, internationally acclaimed as an etcher, as a writer of prose, writer of poetry, after-dinner speaker, um, uh, all-round humorist. Um, he's a very amusing, entertaining sort of bloke, great company, um, and a journalist, an Australian journalist who knew him in London, after he had become famous, um, described him, as you said, Bill, as, as the most famous Australian in the world. Yes. I, I think that that was perhaps doing uh, Victor Trumper a bit of a disservice. But <laughs> Yes, I, I, I would agree with that. <laughs> yeah. but if you don't know who Victor Trumper is, I'm sorry for you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, now, do you want me to go on to this now? Or? Yes, by all means. Yeah, 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 yeah look, yeah. yep. So, so what, what I had prepared in the fact or fiction um, uh, category was that I represent the fact faction on this panel. Now, having heard both the co-panelists um, talk about how much time they've spent in the archives, I'd just better moderate that, I think. But, <laughs> but um, I, I was going to go on and say no fiction or fake facts in my writing. Uh, that's the aim. They were all human, of course. I was, however recently involved in a, in a notorious episode of a fake fact. Oh. Um, and Jane, your president, encouraged me to include it in this session today. It came about in connection with the centenary of World War I, and in particular the centenary last April, the famous Australian victory at Villa Retina. No one was more pivotal in the celebrated counter-attack at Villa's breadth than Pompey Elliott, who was Australia's most famous fighting general. Now, as you said, Bill, I've written two books on Pompey. Now, the centenary back in April, the centenary commemorations were a big deal. Your recently departed Prime Minister travelled over there to attend these significant ceremonies and at two of them he made a speech. Now, both these speeches were set-piece speeches, not impromptu doorstops, and some staffer or staffers had presumably put time and effort into, into preparing them Prime Minister Turnbull proceeded to declare in both speeches that the stunning, decisive counter-attack they were commemorating had been conceived and brilliantly organised with outstanding leadership by General Monash. Oh. This was startling praise because Monash had nothing to do with it. <laughs> he wasn't there. Fake fact. Fake fact. It was Pompey Elliott's plan and half the operation was carried out by Pompey's men. Now, I wrote an article about this saying that Pompey would turn in his grave if he knew that the credit for this exceptional achievement had been given to a commander who was not even there, 
And if anyone is interested, you can easily find it via Google because The Age published it and chose as their title for it, Turnbull made an astonishing error at Villa Retina. Right. <laughs> <laughs> he certainly did. Is that why they oh, got rid did. of him? Now, <laughs> proceeding, historical research has been transformed during my decades as a historian. Historians like me have retained from the 1970s and 80s our own war stories of having to grapple with those dreadful early vintage microfilm readers in libraries as we tried to read murky images of old newspapers and other records. Now, with the National Library's wonderful digitisation of old newspapers called Trove, you can look them up on your home computer and search within them. An amazing transformation. Now, this, along with other advances in digitised information, has benefited historical research exponentially. You can find out so much more now and so much more easily now. Um, now, one more introductory observation, if I may, Bill. Please yeah, do, yeah. yes. You have the floor. Thank you. After, after I've collected all the factual info I can gather, I then proceed to write my story, striving to make it not only factual but also as lively and accessible as I can. And sometimes you can actually end up with more factual info than you think you have. The best way to explain is via an example. One of my books is a multi-biography called Farewell, Dear People, Biographies of Australia's Lost Generation. Yes. It consists of 10 extended biographies of Australians of outstanding potential who did not survive the war and exemplified Australia's lost generation of that conflict. The first biography in it is of Jeff McRae, a widely admired officer with creative talent and an endearing personality who died at Fromel on the 19th of July, 1916, leading his men across no man's land as the commander of the 60th Australian Battalion. Fromel was a disaster. It remains the worst 24 hours in Australian history since European settlement. I wanted to try and write something about what Jeff was feeling on that day. He wrote a remarkable three-sentence letter to his parents on that day, which gave, me for the which gave me the title for the book. I've got the book here, but I think I can remember it exactly. Today I lead my battalion in an assault on the German lines and I pray to God I may come through all right and bring honour to our name. If not, I will at least have laid down my life for you and my country, which is the greatest privilege I can, which is the greatest privilege I can ask for. Third sentence, farewell, dear people, the hour approacheth. Mm. Now, a few hours later, Jeff was dead. Uh, but apart from that letter, I had no actual evidence to indicate what he was feeling. That's no problem if you're in the fiction faction. <laughs> you, just <clears throat> you just make something up. Of course. But that's no good to me in the fact faction. However, it occurred to me that I did know what he was feeling. For 15 months, Jeff had written rich letters describing his war experiences and over and over again, he wrote that every time he was in a perilous and frightening situation, he handled it by thinking of home, more precisely, of his parents and girlfriend. Thinking of them, he reiterated, steeled him to do his duty as an officer when he felt daunted and afraid. And I realised that, of course, that is exactly what he would have, been, what he would have done at Fromel 
because it's what he always did in such circumstances. So that's what I described him doing at Fromell on the very first page of the book in the important scene-setting prologue. So that's why I say that sometimes you can have more factual info at your disposal than you think. Brilliant. Thank you, Ross. Thank you very much. Thank you. And we will come back as well, but Caroline, um, you recently did an interview with someone, and I've got it printed out here in front of me, and um, it's about, um, about your writing and your books. And my first question is, which you've heard before, are there any lessons you learned from writing and releasing Maggie's Kitchen that you took into consideration when working on Eleanor's Secret? Does that ring a bell with you? Yes, um, there is, and it it kind of leads off from what Ross was talking about with, um, with fact and archive and the material you have. I think it's one of the hardest things as a historical fiction writer is not to become too in love with your research and get too obsessed by it and just want to include everything because um, it's just not possible <laughs> and probably not very interesting. Um, it's actually, for anyone who is a writer out there, one of the sort of key lessons that I learned was um, James Bradley who was one of my tutors at the Faber Academy and he, he warned me about this and he said um, you know don't try and include everything because there will be an opportunity to use the material later when you write around the book and that comes into play when you know you are trying to promote it or you're writing something um, related to it so it's like don't panic if you've got a pet project that you love and you're working on you will be able to use that but just don't try and sort of include everything um but certainly having written maggie's kitchen and used a lot of research and archive but um in in a different way um i actually used a lot of the war cookery leaflets of recipes they actually used at the time and i tested them and updated them um, with help from friends and family and i've included those in the back of the book and i've also got little epigraphs at the front of each chapter which were um, food facts that the Ministry of Food gave to people at the time to help them make all their provisions go further, and it just seemed to be like a really nice, um, a really nice um, touch. And again, with Eleanor's Secret, um, these were the war artists. These are the artworks that they produced oh. at the time that they released mm. in two volumes of four books: one in 1942 and one in 1943. I can't like hand them out or anything, but I just thought. You know, when you when you come across sort of tangible research like this, it it really does influence you. And I've actually um, weaved it into the book because it can't, becomes one of the research tools that Catherine uses to help solve the mystery of what happened to Jack Vallant. So, you know, material kind of pops up in different and surprising ways. Um, so, in terms of you know learning as you go along definitely keep track and really good notes of all the research because it becomes really important if you want to go back and find something that, that is important. Thank you. I don't know what... um, my next question was actually going to be about art, which is, I'm reading now from the script as well, art plays a major role in the book, which is wonderful. Is art a field you're interested in? I think you've just answered that. But in the spectrum today, uh, Sydney Morning Herald, Carolyn Bohm has um, contributed an article which she calls How to Judge a Book by Its Cover, which I think includes art. And the subtitle is Farewell to the Nude, All Hail the Floral, and how things have perhaps changed in terms of 
marketing books. Is that something you take into account for your books, the cover and the artwork on the cover? Um, I, I mean, the publisher really um, directs the, mm. the, their chosen artist. I mean, there's certainly a discussion um, about what it should look like and um, different elements to introduce. And with, with Eleanor's Secret, I really wanted there to be their art. Um, so that's the watercolour splodges which are on the book because that gives a real sense of um, the story. I think it doesn't give a sense of the contemporary storyline as well, but it does, I think it's got a good feel of the mystery. But, um, you know, they, they, they're good at what they do. They know what they're doing. So we yeah. kind of yes. leave it up you to the publishers. Sort of tend, tend to leave it up to the publishers. It's left to the publishers. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Yes, well, I've... Um, I, I, I have, yeah. for instance, on this one that happens to be here, I, I, the only thing I said to them about this was that it would be great if the 10 extended biographies that I've written about, if, if, 10, if those 10 could be... Photo, if those 10 Actually. photographs of them could be on the cover in some way, yes. and they ended up saying, tried that, and then uh, that didn't work, and they ended up with, with one of them, choosing one, with, um, with him sort of blacked out and a bit vague, and he's sort of, you know, he's gone and that sort of thing. But then they had the great idea, because it's a thick enough book, to use on the spine. Ah, oh. Wow. Yeah, that, yes. I thought that was a great idea. Yes, yeah, yes, that yeah. certainly is a tension. Yeah. tension mm. Thank you. Thank you, Ross. Um, Meg, back to you. Um, your series, the Montserrat series, yeah. I think you're up to number three or four? Uh, four is um, coming out. Coming out, yes, yep. okay. Mm. And um, that follows the uh, adventures of a gentleman convict detective, Hugh Montserrat, and his intelligent, strong-willed housekeeper, Hannah Mulrooney. Mm -hmm. She wouldn't be an Irish woman by any chance, would she? She would. She might. <laughs> the real brains behind the operation. Yes. So there we have it. And by the way, just at the back of here is something I'd like to show you later. Oh, it's okay. a very poignant place. It's the, this is a decommissioned oh, Catholic yeah. church mm. for which we actually have to thank God Whitlam for the renovation, but we'll come back to that. And out of there, there are yeah. some very poignant headstones. Oh. Nadir County Perry, yeah. Nadir County Wicklow, yes. many small children, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and a one special place. But we'll, I'll, we'll oh. perhaps deal with that later. I'll but you also have an interest in obscure penal settlements, yes. which is also very interesting. Well, one of the one of the things that um, uh, I feel strongly about is that we don't um, teach enough of our own history in our schools, yeah. um, uh, and that. Uh, I, I, I don't want to use the word celebrate because there's a lot not to celebrate. There's a lot of violence and loss, particularly for um, uh, the Indigenous people of Australia. But celebrate or not celebrate, I think we have to embrace it at least in all its horror and uh, all its glory. Um, and there are so many stories. I will never run out of story ideas as long as I'm writing Australian historical fiction. Yeah. You just need to open a journal or read a letter and there's another story idea jumping yeah. out at you. It makes me wonder how history teachers manage to make it seem so dull because there's so much, so yeah. much blood and juice in it, so much yes. interest. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that Dad and I both really wanted to do was write about some of the more um, obscure penal settlements and the stories that came out of those, as well as the Norfolk Islands and the Port Arthurs and the Sydneys. Um, so uh, 
uh, we are doing, the next one is set in Sydney, but so far we've been to Port Macquarie, which was a penal settlement yes. for second offenders, a colonial supermax, yes. if you like. Yes. Um, uh, the Parramatta Female Factory, where my yes. great-great-grandmother languished. Three three classes of women, weren't there? Yes, first, yes. second and third. Yes. Yeah, 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 depending on uh, behaviour and so forth. Uh, and then Mariah Island off the east coast of Tasmania, which yes. is a fascinating place as well. Yes, yeah. thank you. We actually have a connection with Paul McCorry here. All right. Richard Kelly, after whom Kelly Street was named, was a young currency lad, uh -huh. the son of, from the Windsor area, the son of Irish uh, on a one-way ticket. I think um, Dr. Paradise or Bobby Paradise was at um, your son described it as a King William IV travelling fellowship, one direction only, no return ticket. <laughs> okay, some of those, but never mind. And um, he was actually captain of a ship delivering government stores to the very early settlement, Port Macquarie, oh. and he lost two ships. He actually, one was wrecked on a sandbar, and another was actually, there was a, um, a, a mutiny, and the convicts on the ship was being taken there, grabbed the ship and took off, and were that never ever heard of again. Mm. Yeah, whichever one it was. But anyway, and but he was he got a big block of land here, and that's yeah. after whom oh, there you go. Name. Yeah, so ah. we do have a connection. Um, um, Ross, I think we should get back to you, and somewhere here, um, farewell, dear people, biography, that was definitely one. There's another one you have, which is about the early Labour Party, the light on the hill, the Australian yes. Labour Party, 1891, to 1991, so I guess the yeah. hundred years of its that's right in being. So that's right. It was the um, centenary history of the ALP. Centenary history of the ALP. Yes. Do you want to take us down that well, pathway for a um, while? The ALP um, knew their centenary was coming up. Uh, they commissioned uh, a few historians, um, as I remember. Though that this is before the, the the pitch for the book itself came up to try and work out uh, when the centenary um, should most properly be commemorated. And I think they asked Manning Clark and Humphrey McQueen and there may have been others. And in the end, they felt that um, 1891 was the, was the most appropriate year uh, for the formation of the party, so therefore we'd do the centenary in 1991. And they put an ad in the paper in 1980, uh, late 86, I think it was. No, 85, 85. And, and I'm inviting expressions of interest and I expressed interest and um, there was an interview and I got chosen and, and that was uh, a hell of a job. So you've got, um, if, you, if you imagine you are covering in one volume the 100 years of this remarkable party, rich in events and individuals um, and what, I, what, what the task was, was to cover the history in all states and federal to 1991. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a big job. Yes. Uh, it was a big job. I'd sort of started on Pompey to some extent. Yes. Uh, the link. It was a project, yes. Pompey Elliot, that was a project of mine. Um, yes. But that was, sometimes I say that was in the back seat. While the ALP was happening, in fact, it was in the boot or wasn't in the car altogether. <laughs> you know, it was, it was just because uh, the ALP project, as Barry would be well aware, was a, a daunting, big, big project. All those rich personalities that I tried to um, include as, as much as I could within the constraints of the, you know, one volume compression. 
yes. and just try and, and also Bill trying to make it um, uh, trying to make it so that anyone in the Labor Party across the factional spectrum and there's always been factions to some extent or other um, could see it as as the history of their party yes yeah so right. so if an issue came up let's say MX missile in the 1980s, there was a kerfuffle about that. Um, and I might say, there's only room for a paragraph on it. Yes. And I might say, well, you know, the centre-left faction thought X and uh, important minister, I think Robert Ray at the time, was it, yeah, uh, thought Y and the Kalgoorlie branch passed a motion saying Z. Yes. <laughs> and right. there are all these things wow. to, to weave in. Oh, yes. <laughs> as much as one could as the writer. And and um, and then the conclusion was such and such, and and uh, th that was the sort of approach through it. And um, yeah, people said uh, nice things about it, but yes. it was a daunting project. These are the disparate faction, faction, factions. That's <laughs> right. That's yes. Right. Yeah. Um, can I ask a question about the spelling of Labour? Is it a yeah, truism sure. that somebody made a mistake very early in the piece, yeah, or not? It's possible. I mean, yes. I I. I, I Back at back at that time, well, all the time throughout the history, um, you know, the party conference is the ultimate sort of um, uh, decision-making body. Yes, and caucus or the no, no, no. A federal conference, federal conference and sorry. national conference, and um, the federal conference report. I forget. See, the book came out in 1991. You'll forgive me if I forget the details, but um, it was. The federal conference every three years or so, and I think uh, the federal conference report in 05, 08 and nineteen twelve spelt Labor differently. Yeah. There, it, 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 there was a change each time. Now, as I see it, that was probably only because the national secretary, who was responsible for the federal conference report, um, had a different view about how to spell Labor. And, and that, that's sort of, we ended up with L-A-B-O-R okay. for the Australian Labor Party. What was the link with um, sort of the uh, Labor Party in the United Kingdom or in Great Britain then with people like Keir Hardy? Was there a... Yes, there was. There? Yes, yeah. there was. And, okay. and what, what is fascinating, and I might touch on this a little bit more tomorrow. Yes, fine. Yes. Um, is, is that Australia was leading the world uh, and with the Labor Party, in Australia's Labor Party, very much at the forefront... Yes. In uh, you know progressive initiatives, and uh, Australia's I mean uh, one of the books of mine that's out there is is um, is the story of the first national Labor government in the world under our Chris Watson in 1904, yeah. our third prime minister. Now um, you know there's comparisons as you've raised Bill with with England. Um, England did not have their first Labor government. For example, for another for, for decades, mm. for decades, 1924. That's why I was thinking, can I say decades? 04 yes. to 24. Yes, I can. <laughs> Two of them. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's right. 24. Yes. Very. Yeah. Thank very you. spot on. Yes. Wow. Thank you. Thank well, you. representing the uh, the non-fiction faction. <laughs> no, no, that's me. Oh, that's you. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, the fiction. The fiction faction. faction. Sorry, the lady. Yeah, yeah. Now I did pass this to you that. Uh, it was written by a feminist author two weeks ago, I think again in the spectrum, uh, that women need fiction, men don't. Would either of you like to comment on that? <laughs> so, 
or I is think, it a little bit too? I think humans need fiction. Okay, yeah. humans need fiction. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're not going to oppose that, are you, Caroline? No, I don't. There's been a pause in the room. Okay. Look, um, we're very we're running out of time. Are there any other questions from the floor? I just wanted to hear more on that last fact because, I mean, it's just a sad truth that women have less stories written about them, particularly in the past, because they're in less prominent positions. Yeah. And I wonder if you ever find yourself, when you want to write about these people, you feel conflicted because maybe there's not enough information or... I'm not sure, I just kind of yeah. want to hear more about your thoughts on that. Not, not so much... Sorry, do you want to go? Oh, no. uh, not so much conflicted, but when you, particularly when you're dealing with um, you know, sort of early colonial period and prior to that. Um, educating women was not a priority. A lot of women of interest were illiterate and therefore they didn't leave a journal. And um, you were saying earlier, that's fine, you can make stuff up if you're writing fiction, and you can, which is why my yeah. Mary Bryant book, I've given her a different name, changed a few minor facts for narrative reasons because mm. I have no idea, I can only intuit what she thought and felt based on her actions. she I, It's almost as though you find out more about her by the hole she leaves than by anything anything she said. So I wanted to give her a different name and fictionalise her so that I could, you know, it felt wrong to be putting thoughts and feelings and words into someone's mouth when I don't know for sure that that's what she, she thought and felt. But, yeah, certainly there is with women in that period of history, it is harder to, to find stuff simply because they weren't often, you know, often weren't educated and when they were, uh, their writings um, often weren't considered worthy of preservation. So when you find a journal or a series of letters, like a woman I'm researching at the moment, Mary Reby, all of her <laughs> letters are available, that <laughs> is gold. If you find a woman who's yes. on who, on whom records like that have been kept, mm -hmm. I would have killed for that with Mary Bryant. Yes. But, uh, yeah, so that's one of the challenges with researching women in history. And it's, it's similar with the, uh, the art that I was looking into, Second World War art. Because there weren't a, many female war artists, they didn't leave a body of work that I could look at. And also the value, because there were a lot of, and, and I don't know how this works out, because normally when there's less supply, there's a higher value. But because there was a smaller body of work produced by female war artists, it wasn't worth as much. So it's like all along the line, there's different kind of levels of inequality. But I think that that's what makes um, historical fiction so rich with story ideas, because you have so many of those inequalities built in that you don't have to recreate. You've got those tensions and those disconnects there already. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure Meg might agree with that. Or... Yes, uh, definitely. definitely. Thank you. You know, we're, this is all coming together. Um, and I would, we're about out of time now, but I'd like to quote from actually a review of one of your books, Ross, which I think is, yes, The Light on the Hill, The Labour Party, by Dr. Rog Be Rod Beecham in the Melbourne Report. And it is though The Light on the Hill, massively researched and crammed with information, though it is, compels like an accomplished novel. Please join the fiction faction as well. Um, on that note, I think um, I see Madam Chair, of our president, looking at me, um, staring at me, they're eyeballing me, and I think it's time that I close this session now. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.
If you enjoyed that session from the Scone Literary Festival 2018, then head on over to our website, www.rightsforwomen.com forward slash rights for festivals. That's where you'll be able to find all of the episodes from all of the festivals that we recorded in 2018 and the ones coming up for 2019, starting with Storyfest, which we'll be heading off to from June 21 to 23 and we'll be bringing to you very soon after that. There will be many more episodes of the Scone Literary Festival yet to come over the next couple of weeks, so do keep your eye out in the feed and make sure you subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher and wherever you get your pods. You can find out more about the Scone Literary Festival at www.sconewritersfestival.com.au. Please like, share, you know, do all the communal things, tell people about us and give us a hoy if you have a festival coming up that you'd like us to record and be a part of. You can either send us a message through our Facebook page at Rights for Festivals or go onto the website and send us an email. We'd love to hear from you. Until the next episode, keep reading, thinking and questioning. This podcast was edited by Kel Butler from Listen Up Podcasting.